You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this first day of May 2011. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind the audience to check into CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other websites that support The Corbett Report's work. The Corbett Report is independent, alternative, listener-supported media, so in order to keep this media going and broadcasting, we do need your help. And you can do that either by buying my 2009 Video Archive DVD and or signing up for a monthly donation via the subscribe button on the subscribe tab of CorbettReport.com. Of course, all of the media provided at CorbettReport.com is completely free, but if you would like to give a monthly 100 Japanese yen donation, then you can subscribe via the subscribe button on the subscribe tab. And I would very much like to thank all of those uh, listeners out there who have so far taken the time and effort to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated, and I have tried to make the effort to give an email to each and every person who has subscribed so far, uh, just thanking you for your subscription. And uh, if I have not done so, please get in touch and let me know, and I'll be happy to be in touch with you, because your support is genuinely appreciated. And all of those who have sent in their orders for the 2009 Video Archive DVD this week, they were uh, greatly received gratefully received and greatly appreciated and I will be sending out the next batch of DVDs this week and I will send you an email once your DVD is on the way so please keep an eye out for that later this week. And uh, on another note this week, I know a few of my listeners have sent in emails to let me know that they've seen the new title banner for the Corbett Report website at CorbettReport.com, and were quite impressed with it, as am I. And of course, it's not by myself. It's uh, from a listener who also happens to be a graphic designer. His name is Bruno, and he has donated his services to redesign the website and to make uh, some graphics look a little bit better. So if you want to check out his uh, other work, he is part of a collaborative of graphic designers that can be found at labo.net. That's L-A-A-B-O.net. So you can check out some of his other work there, some of his uh, personal work. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Bruno. And thank you to all of those people who continue to support The Corbett Report, either monetarily or through word of spreading word of mouth about this podcast or through sending me links, tips and suggestions through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. Of course, I don't have time to reply to each and every person individually, but I do try to read everything that comes in and I do greatly appreciate all of the tips and information that does come in. So thank you again for all of that support. And now let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends, to episode 184 of the Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Second Republic. It will no doubt be clear to many of the listeners of this podcast, if not the rest of the estimated 2 billion or so people who tuned into the royal nuptials earlier this week, that the sickening display of the world media in falling all over themselves to throw themselves at the feet of this eugenics-obsessed inbred elite was only a distraction to keep people from really wondering who are these people, where do they come from, and what gives them the power to rule over the people anyway.
big news out of London Crosswire is what? Right around 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. this morning. Finally, that's right. Prince William and Kate Middleton are going to be married. They're getting engaged now. They're going to be married next spring or summer in London. There is a statement out of Buckingham Palace. Queen Elizabeth said she is absolutely delighted for her grandson and his bride-to-be. The United States was founded on July 4th, 1776 in resistance to the hegemonic, despotic, tyrannical rule of King George III and the abuse against the colonies. And most of the British Parliament was against going to war with their fellow Englishmen because the king was unpopular there as well. It was known that he was a German king his father being brought over to rule England. These people could barely speak English. Nothing against Germans, but you don't see me going over to Germany to rule them. The very essence of July 4th and 1776 is resistance to the disgusting House of Windsor. They didn't get that name until around World War I, because before that they were known as the Saxe-Coburg-Gothas. Notice that we hear their names, Prince William. You never hear his last name, do you? The slave public, many of them in England, who support these people, don't even know their last names because they don't want you knowing their last names. Three times in the last three years, the Parliament in Canada hasn't done what the Queen of England wants, so she suspended them, shut down the Parliament. Happened in the late 70s in Australia. This is a tyrannical group pushing eugenics, population reduction, all the carbon taxes. Uh, prince Philip, the Queen's husband, another German royal prince, uh, is a supporter of eugenics. His cousin, uh, who was uh, the uh, prince married to the Queen of the Netherlands, an admitted Nazi, an admitted eugenicist. The point is, these are the most filthy, degenerate people you can imagine. She owns more than half of Canada, more than half the land in England. And then she's paid by the government for her palaces and all the rest of it. It's disgusting. And to watch U.S. television fawning, Fox, CNN, CBS, all of them. Oh, it's so wonderful. No one in America can wait until next week. The way they're hyping it. One week until the royal wedding. This is exciting stuff. I mean, it's, it's hard. To, I mean, the energy is just palpable. Young couples get married. They're just hoping that some bank will be nice enough to give them a mortgage. Yeah. These folks have a number of palaces to pick from. NBC News is launching a free royal wedding app for the iPad. Got a this is truly a love story that captures everybody's attention. This goes back to Edward Bernays 100 years ago saying, look, to make politicians and royalty popular, we'll have Hollywood stars come to banquets and events with them. We'll have music stars. We'll have other people go there to basically make these elites be seen as celebrities themselves. You know why America was founded? Because under the imperial royal system in Europe and England, if you weren't part of the inside group who had basically the patronage uh, of the crown, where they gave you land, houses, jobs, you couldn't even get a license to be a carpenter, a license to be a blacksmith, a license to brew beer, unless their local lords gave you the authorization. So it wasn't just that you had to pay outrageous taxes. You had to get their permission to even have a job, to have a profession. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the essence of globalism is big mega corporations, many of which are owned and controlled by the German royal family that runs England uh, and, of course, uh, the Netherlands. 
the whole system they've set up and they promote is about this new global corporate system worldwide that through government power shuts down their competition and transfers the people's wealth through taxes to the offshore cartels. The point is well taken in that it's especially bizarre to see Americans going gaga over the prospect of the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton, as if Americans should have any interest whatsoever in the royal family. But I suppose bygones are bygones, and that was 200 years ago. And this is today, and things have changed. The royal family doesn't have any power over anything anymore, you'll say, those defenders of monarchical, inbred, elitist, eugenics-obsessed rule out there. And just to counteract that, although I'm sure many of my listeners will not need any explanation of why that's wrong, but just to counteract that and to show some of the power that the royal family still seems to wield somehow or other... We'll take a look at this from cambridgenews.co.uk from the 30th of April, 2011. Activist arrested ahead of royal wedding protest. Quote, Activist Charlie Veach, who was planning to stage an anti-state protest in London at the royal wedding, was arrested by police ahead of the event. Mr. Veach, who lives off Midsummer Common in Cambridge and set up a group called The Love Police, had previously told the news he and other group members planned to pull out megaphones as the royal procession approached. Silky Carlo, 21, a second-year student at Cambridge University studying politics and psychology, said Mr. Veach, her boyfriend, was arrested on Thursday, April 28th at 5pm. He was arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to cause public nuisance. Miss Carlo added, he was arrested as part of a political victim victimization campaign. What he does is he is a filmmaker who uses a megaphone. He's quite known for being harmless, peaceful, and vocal. One of the things we specialize in is hugging police. It's fun to film. They are friends rather than enemies, so this is quite unprecedented. This is a free speech crime, but worse than that, it's a free speech pre-crime. Ms. Carlo said, the royal wedding itself is a public nuisance. I don't consider a democratic protest to be a public nuisance. End quote. And for anyone who did not quite catch the significance of an activist being arrested ahead of an event where police believe he was conspiring to protest, well, anyone who doesn't see how that pre-crime uh, case precedent is absolutely chilling is probably not paying attention, but just for another example of the royal uh, family and its ability to, well, do whatever it wants anywhere around the world, we'll turn to this article, Infowars.com, April 29th, 2011. Royal Family Enforces Media Embargo Against Australia to Prevent Nazi Jokes. Quote, Still think the British royal family has no power and fulfills merely a ceremonial purpose? Think again. In order to prevent an Australian comedy show from making jokes about Prince Philip being a Nazi during the royal wedding, the royals ordered broadcasters in Britain to enforce a media embargo that would have completely severed live coverage to Australia's biggest broadcaster if they refused to cancel the satirical show. After Prince Charles's Clarence House found out that the Australian broadcaster ABC planned to run a satirical commentary of the royal wedding alongside the regular feed, Charles demanded ABC cancel the show and then ordered broadcast suppliers BBC, Associated Press, Sky, and ITN to cut off the feed to Australia, a command which they instantly obeyed. That's right, the royals have the power to enforce media embargoes between Britain and other major countries of the world. If this doesn't indicate 
how much influence and power they still retain, then nothing does. End quote. And I would suggest you go and read that article for more details on how the chasers were prevented from doing their satirical commentary on the royal wedding because it did not amuse the royal house of quote-unquote Windsor. But today's episode is not meant to be merely an anti-monarchical screed. It is meant to be much more than that. It is meant to be, in fact, the postulation of a a system which we can put up against the monarchical theory of how our society should be governed, or even the oligarchical theory of how our society should be governed. That is to say, there should be no small group of people who wield the power over the mass of society for their own personal gain. And that is self-evident to many today, and self-evident because of the tireless efforts of those giants in the past who made this, forced this idea into the public consciousness. And of course, one of the key documents which did that was one of the most important political documents ever written, and one that was referenced in that original Alex Jones video about the royal wedding. July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson. The Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson and passed in Congress as a unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, July 4, 1776. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shewn that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed." But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right. It is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. 
The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Followed, of course, by an enumeration of those injuries and usurpations by King George III on the colonies of the time, and although that is not particularly what we're going to be looking at today, it would be it would behoove the listeners, shall we say, to go and reacquaint themselves with the text of the Declaration of Independence and with those injuries and usurpations there enumerated, because I think there are some very interesting parallels with our current situation. And certainly, I would say the general thrust of history shows that we are once again facing a situation where the people en masse are beginning to realize that the governments which they themselves have instituted in order to secure their rights is no longer acting on their behalf and is no longer deriving its just powers from the consent of the governed. And anyone who has listened really to any of the previous episodes of this podcast or any of the work that I've either put out in the past or promoted on this podcast or in my videos or articles or interviews will no doubt already be well familiar with that fact. But again, let's put this into some context and show how the great American Republic, for instance, and of course America is not the only example of a republic in the history of the world, but it is an example that has shined as a beacon of hope and freedom to many around the world for many generations, but certainly is no longer so if it ever truly was. And how did we get to the point where today everyone recognizes that the American Empire is really like the Empire of Star Wars and is led by the Emperor and Darth Vader and is no longer on the side of what is good and right in the world and is indeed just inflicting pain and suffering on so many different corners of the world? How did this once mighty beacon of freedom and hope fall so dramatically? In America, you had an amazing situation because you had, you had the founding fathers who figured out that they could deconstruct the monarchy in such a way and then reproduce it with the three primary branches of government in a way that would create checks and balances and, and separation of powers. So you could have room, therefore, for individuals to work within the context of a cooperative, which is a democratic system of government, but it would still have enough room for individuals to rise up and become profitable and self-sustaining and um, rich uh, in, in the pursuit of happiness without becoming dictatorial. Uh, but unfortunately, over the years, since all of those separation of powers have been cut away, and all of the, the, the beautiful design by the Founding Fathers has been co-opted by one corporate entity, one corporate communist entity, you don't have that anymore. So what we have, we're, we're back to where we were before the revolution. You have one monolithic state. For the first hundred years or so of the United States, after the 1700s, when we freed ourselves from uh, British rule, no corporation was, permit, was given a charter in the United States unless it served the public good. It had to prove that. And then its charter only lasted for 10 years or sometimes as long as the project to build a bridge or a canal or something lasted, but it, it had to be up for review and it could only get charters if it, was, uh, if it was shown that it was serving the public interest. 
that changed primarily because John D. Rockefeller uh, kind of bribed Delaware and New Jersey to begin with into accepting a different system where he said, listen, if I pay you lots of money in terms of taxes, et cetera, uh, I want to be licensed and not have to serve the public good. I want to be able to get around that law. And state after state after state changed at that point. In the United States, our Constitution and Bill of Rights recognizes that individuals have innate freedoms that can never be taken away by any government. For the first time in history, the people were unbound to reach for their full potential, producing and outcompeting every other nation on earth. The rights of free speech, self-defense, private property, due process of law, and many others ignited a revolution in human development that threatened the despotic rule of monarchs and tyrants worldwide. But the corrupt elites had studied history. They knew that great civilizations could only fall from within. And they know from previous experience and history that civilizations come and go and dwindle. They know the reasons why they come and go. Isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? Morty Strong, founder of the UN Environment Program, from his opening speech. Rio Earth Summit, 1992. Maurice Strong is the man who said that uh, they would never allow another country to rise up as powerful as America. It will never be allowed to happen again. And he said the best thing we can do is to tear down all the factories, all the, the top commerce of the United States, and level it and give it back to nature. That, so that was the advice from this character, who has tremendous power at the United Nations and was picked up and groomed by Rockefeller himself. Over the past decades, since the Kennedy assassination approximately, you've had an ongoing oligarchical transformation of virtually every country in the world. And in the United States, it's taken the form of an oligarchical counter-revolution against the reforms of the 1930s, with the Wall Street interest asserting itself as more and more dominant. And once bankers and oligarchs have power, the things that they do, you could call them a policy. You could call it something like a tropism. It's like the way a plant responds. Naturally, since they're oligarchs, they're going to try to downgrade the standard of living of the vast majority of the population. They're going to claim that the world is overpopulated, that industrialization, industrial pollution, and overpopulation are the main problems that face the world and they're generally going to try to crush and mortify any kind of popular democracy or mass movements with any kind of progressive content. Nations rise and fall. Um, they knew how debt could never be recuperated. They knew that disease or, or prolonged war could wipe out the population and the future populations that pay off debt. So these guys all work together. That's why it's no surprise that today you have Lord Rothschild coming out, pushing the latest scam or religion that we must all believe in, which is global warming, which his personal bank, his family's bank in Switzerland, will be in charge of. They've run the system, the whole economic system of the world for the last two and a half hundred years. So why shouldn't they also run the economic system for the next few hundred years? The question of a ruling class Oligarchy as a ruling class is posed by Plato in the Republic, where we find that oligarchy is a constitution full of many evils, 
where the rich dominate the government by buying it and the average individual or the poor count for absolutely nothing. Oligarchy is a frame of mind. In other words, if you're a banker, this is already a world view. It's a world outlook and it implies the policies that have got us here, right? Malthusian policies, zero growth policies, driving down the standard of living, attempts to wipe out all kinds of mass institutions that might be a countervailing force. Once again, it should come as no surprise to my long-time listeners that the idea of a free and democratic republic should be absolute anathema to the corporate and banking and royal and other oligarchical interests who have always sought to centralize power into their own hands. And even during the time of the American Revolution, even some of the founding fathers were very much working on the other side of that debate. So I would suggest listeners who have not done so to start looking into the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers to look at the debate that was going on at the time even, the struggle that Jefferson and others who really did believe in this new democratic republic had to go through in order to get some of their ideals into place against people like Hamilton and others who really did believe that America was just instituting a new monarchy and that George Washington was just going to be an elected king. And all of the attendant details of that debate, very interesting, but again, more, way bigger in scope than what we have time to get into today. But the point is that oligarchical interests have no interests in a free functioning democratic republic because that means peace and prosperity for vast swaths of the population. And that is, of course, exactly opposite to what works for oligarchical interests who only want to keep people oppressed and in a situation where they are dependent on their masters for their weekly stipend. And that is very much the situation that our country and our countries and our economies of the vast majority of the developed world, if not all of the developed world by this point, find themselves in. And we find ourselves being thrust in a certain direction. We are being given the idea that globalization is somehow the key to saving us from the very ills and problems that this process of globalization seems to have actually caused. So we are now being ushered into a new global era of a global G20 acting as an ersatz world government and uh, really by de facto rather than decree ruling all of the uh, world economies with a completely non-transparent, a completely opaque process that you and I have absolutely no input in whatsoever. And I would just like to head off some of the criticism that some of this rhetoric will no doubt receive at the pass because there has become something of a meme embedded in the truth movement, quote-unquote. Again, I hate to use that term because I think this is not a movement in that sense, but at any rate, the uh, more of that patriot mythology that we've talked about in this podcast before, people love these days to point out that a republic and a democracy are different and that America is not a democracy, it is a republic. And this is something that we've heard again and again and again from many different people, including people whose whose writings and teachings and thoughts I respect and who I've featured on this podcast before, like Aaron Russo and others. But 
I would just like to point out that this is, although it is useful to make a distinction between pure democracy and a republic, and there is a distinction to be made, it is not the be-all and end-all of distinctions in forms of government. And in fact, if we just take it on its face as democracy versus republic, it is a false dichotomy. Because in fact, America is a constitutional democratic republic. They are not mutually exclusive terms. And that, again, is beyond the scope of today's discussion, so we will leave that for a future episode of this podcast, which will probably be entirely devoted to that issue because it is an intricate one. But suffice it to say that when we talk about democratic ideals, it does not need for... We do not need to have someone interject that, yes, America is a republic. Yes, we understand there is a republic, which means that there is rule by law, which means there are certain inalienable rights which are enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but not given by those documents, and that they can never be violated and never be taken away by any democratic process. Yes, we understand that that is taken for granted. Yet still, the people do have a say in the government and how the government actually functions on a day-to-day basis, because the government still does have functions, and those functions must be absolutely taken over and supervised by the people, because when they are not, they end up in the hands of the special interests, which is, of course, on its face, the situation we find ourselves in today, where Tens of trillions of dollars are getting pumped out the back door of the phony Federal Reserve system directly into the bank, the pockets of the banksters, including many foreign banks, as the recently released documents that Bloomberg managed to pry out of the hands of the Federal Reserve has recently shown us. But that brings us to the point which I think many of us realize we have been at for some time now, and yet we have not made much progress on, and that is the question of once we realize that the original republic of America or of many other countries, even those countries that are not republics, such as my home country of Canada, all of those countries that like to think of themselves as free and democratic states, well, once we realize that they are in fact uh, states that have been completely taken over bought and paid for by the elite oligarchical banking interests and the royalty and the corporations and all of the other uh, people who want to rule over the vast majority of humanity. Once we realize that our governments have been taken over by these small groups of people, what can we do to stop that? What can we do to reverse that if there ever was a time in which we were more free than we are today? That, of course, is a very big question, so it would entail, I imagine, a very detailed answer. And that answer, I would dare to posit, at the present time, does not exist in its complete fullness. We do not yet have our current modern-day Jefferson, who has come out with the document that will define the future of politics for the next few hundred years. We do not yet have that encapsulation of the zeitgeist of our age that will tell the future generations what we feel and believe about how to institute a government that actually does work for the people. But we are in an era where the formation of that document is possible and in which we have to devote ourselves to pursuing that goal. Again, these are big questions, and it will not be an easy process or an overnight process of coming up with the answers. 
but it's one that we have to engage in. And that's why my hat's off to everyone who has put their hat in the ring in order to begin constructing an answer to the question of how we should govern ourselves. And the probably the most exciting and most interesting and most detailed answer I have seen yet comes from secondrepublicproject.com. Now, this is obviously a site that is still very much in its infancy and its early stages. This is a movement and an idea that is still very much in its early stages. But it has been so far well articulated by Adrian Salbucci of Argentina. And of course, Adrian Salbucci was a guest on this podcast in the past, in our previous episode on uh, Argentina and the IMF. And people, I would suggest people go back to listen to that uh, interview to find out more about Adrian Selbucci. And I would also suggest people go and check out Adrian Selbucci's very detailed YouTube channel so they can find out more about the Second Republic Project, something that he has been talking about for years now and has fleshed out in great detail across multiple videos. So it is an idea that is already on its way to being formulated, but still very much in the early stages. So turning to secondrepublicproject.com and looking at the Our Mission page, I read the following, quote, The ideas and vision for worldwide change promoted by the Second Republic movement are expressed in the five pillars. This concise summary, authored by Adrian Salbucci of Argentina, addresses the fundamental challenges facing just about every country in the world and certainly all countries in the Americas. The Second Republic movement therefore proposes, inside the framework of the five pillars and the associated sovereignty principles, the democratic development of a basic template for governance, comprehensive and all-encompassing, which, if correctly articulated and implemented by a growing majority of national citizens, will surface politically and result in the democratic and popular restructuring of their country. We begin by understanding how the present world order operates to achieve goals which are contrary to those of the Second Republic movement. This leads to an understanding on why our beleaguered countries are in such an increasingly troubled state and how corresponding common-sense measures developed and articulated by the Second Republic movement can overcome the hitherto intractable problems that have been caused by the destructive policies of the new world order. End quote. Again, all of that is very nice rhetoric, but of course the devil is always in the details. So in order to begin understanding the five pillars upon which the Second Republic project is based and starting to understand a little bit more about this project, I'd like to turn to an audio excerpt from an interview which I have just conducted with Adrian Salbucci of secondrepublicproject.com and which is not yet available. It's a video uh, interview that has not yet been completely edited, so I will not have it up on my uh, YouTube account until probably tomorrow, that is Monday the 2nd of May, 2011. So please look for it then. But at the moment, let's take a listen to a sneak preview of that conversation where Adrian Selbucci begins to outline the Second Republic project and what it's really based on. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about your idea for a second republic, but I guess before we get into the details of what that is and what that entails, we should first define why we need a second republic. What is it that we're, we're trying to construct the second republic against? Well, the basic idea, actually, uh, let me just uh, rewind the sec- for a second there. Uh, the last time Argentina had a major collapse was in 2001-2002. We had a full-fledged banking collapse, we had a full-fledged monetary collapse, and the economy 
was so badly impacted by this that uh, gross domestic product fell 40% in one year and half of our population fell below the poverty line. That meant the lower middle class and most of them did not make it back. So that was very traumatic. And at that time, uh, we were quite active trying to promote what we called the, uh, well, it would translate from Spanish as the Argentine Second Republic Movement. And the rationale behind it was that for various reasons, which would be too lengthy to explain and, and very specific to Argentina, we realized that our nation state, our uh, public uh, institutions, had for one reason or another been hijacked by um, seen and unseen forces. Let's simplify it by saying the banking cabal, the international bankers and so forth, through Argentina's foreign public sovereign debt. So we said, okay, so the problem, we defined it the following way, the problem with Argentina nowadays, which by the way is an immensely, almost un incalculably wealthy country, the problem with Argentina is that our nation state, instead of providing for the common good of the people and defending the national interest, has slowly Trans, uh, transformed into a colonial administration entity. In other words, our public government, our nation state, became an administration uh, entity for the global power elite. So we said, okay, what we need to do is drop the first, the present Argentine Republic and found or refound a second republic. And we used as an example uh, France. France, since the uh, French Revolution, has gone through several republics, and they are now actually in the Fifth Republic. Uh, right after the Second World War, well, the Fourth Republic was, was, was horrendous because it was founded after the Second World War, after the German invasion from 1940 to 1944. It was all very traumatic, and the country became chaotic. And it was in 1957 that a true statesman, Charles de Gaulle, proposed founding a Fifth French Republic, uh, in other words, uh, you know, dealing the cards once again, so th that that would finally get France on its feet. And now they've had a lot of problems, but we must admit since, that since 1958, when the Fifth French Republic was founded with a new constitution, France has not done badly, and they have been the uh, ideological powerhouse of what later was to become the European Union. So it, it, it hasn't gone bad for them. Well, yes, uh, very interesting. So, so, so you're talking specifically and you're writing and thinking in the Argentinian context, but this is an idea that transcends those national boundaries. Yeah, well, uh, let, let me tell you why it, it actually started transcending it. We, we've done uh, quite a lot down here. We haven't been able to obviously uh, set up a, a strong political entity because you need tons of money for that. And we figure whoever puts the money in will want to call the shot. So we're trying to do this rather heroically on a, on, a, on a personal initiative basis with all the people, all the more humble working people down here that are part of the Argentine Second Republic movement. But what happened was that at the beginning of last year, in, uh, in March of 2010, uh, I was invited by a very close friend of mine, who happens to be Canadian also, uh, as, as yourself, uh, Philip Jarman, uh, from a, who has a private financial consultancy, he invited me to uh, uh, a meeting, a commercial meeting, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And at that meeting, there were basically two speakers, G. Edward Griffin, whom I admire enormously, who's uh, the, the expert probably on the Federal Reserve Bank, and myself. And to make a long story short, we discussed everything, and during my uh, uh, presentation, I said, well, in Argentina, we had all these problems, and we reached the conclusion that since our country had been taken, had been transformed into a colonial a a administrative entity, we had to found a second republic. 
And the idea caught on. And what we did is we decided, a small group of us, and we're working very hard at this, to create Second Republic, the concept, which we applied to Argentina until that time, to apply it as a sort of template. Because there are five basic pillars around which Second Republic uh, rallies and they are basically the same for just about any country. The details will naturally uh, change because each country has, has its own problems, its own characteristics, but the basic idea would still hold. So we found it, and we have a, actually a website on this, which is Second Republic Project, altogether, secondrepublicproject.com, which we are building, and we've already uh, placed in that site uh, five videos describing the five basic pillars, and we're starting to put a series of white papers uh, into that site so that people from the world over will be able to a become members or founding members so to speak and also start uh, learning about what, at least what our proposal is all about and seeing how they can apply it to their specific countries based on their specific problems and their specific history. All right, then, well, let's start getting into some of the, the details of what you're talking about here. You've mentioned there are five pillars to the Second Republic idea. Tell us about those pillars. Yeah, let, be, be, before I do that, let me just very basically say how, why we arrived at those five pillars. First of all, what we did here in Argentina, Jim, was use absolute common sense. So we figured, okay, let's start by understanding how the world really works, which is not the way the BBC and CNN and Fox News and the New York Times and the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal tells us that as it works. Let's really understand how the world works, how power has been privatized, how governments, even if even Mr. Obama and even Mr. Cameron in Britain no longer call the shots, that there are entities above the public nation state in every country who are really calling the shots and we call it the privatization of power. So let's start by understanding how the world really works. When you understand the way the, the world really works, that leads you to a second point. You start understanding why your country is in such a dire states, whether it be in America, Argentina, Brazil, Indonesia, Malaysia, where we have a lot of very good friends, Japan, I suppose, as well, although I'm not very knowledgeable about the Japanese scene specifically. So you start understanding why we are in such dire states, uh, uh, straits. And when you, ha when you do that, you start understanding why the global power elite want you and me and all your viewers to think and behave in a certain set of ways and at the same time they don't want us to think and behave in certain other alternative ways. So we scratched our heads and said, well come on, if we understand what they don't want us to do or what they want us to do rather, let's do exactly the opposite. So for example, and here come the five pillars, they don't want any country to have a sovereign nation state, which is the sole republican institution that will promote the common interest and the, the, promote the common good and defend the national interest. So let's found a second republic, let's found a new sovereign nation state. That's the basic idea behind uh, a second republic. Second pillar, the, the, the most important thing that a sovereign nation state has to do is recover its national currency, not the way it's been hijacked in America by the Federal Reserve or in Europe through the European Central Bank or in Argentina through a privately controlled, even though formally public, central bank. Third, 
reject the debt-based economic system, which in the case of Argentina would mean investigating our sovereign public debt, which is totally fraudulent from the very beginning. Probably in other countries it would be different. Probably in America it would mean auditing the Fed, and maybe in Europe it would mean something different. But all countries have that debt-based economic system that we must reject. The fourth pillar is let's recover our Republican institutions, the way so-called democracy works is that they use the entire political structure and they make it subordinated to and dependent on money. Now, money is not democratic. So if we have a, a so-called democratic system dependent on money, that's not democracy at all. Or even worse still, it's the best democracy that money can buy. And the fifth and last uh, pillar is they have totally turned our values upside down. Let's put them right side up again. When, this is a very uh, short and, and, and compressed uh, description, but we are, when you start looking at those five pillars, they uh, will give you a basic model through which you can put just about any problem that any country will have, and one way or another, the common sense solution will shine through of its own. You don't need to have, you don't, you don't need rocket science for this. It's just basic common sense applied to people thinking with our own minds and not with the global power elites minds through all the rubbish they, they sell us in, in, as I say, in their mainstream media. Well, I realize that is kind of the whirlwind overview of the five pillars. So let's let's get a little bit more into the details. Just listening to that overview, it, it does strike me, and I'm sure many of the viewers that uh, that fi finance and uh, the national monetary system is a key part of this. Uh, tell us more about your your what you envision would be a, a type of currency and debt uh, non debt based money that would actually work to empower the people rather than enslave them. Yeah, that, that, that's probably the crucial point because, uh, you know, it's like uh, the, old, the old saying from, Mr. from Lord Rothschild from the 19th century, give me the power to handle a country's money and I don't care who governs, who makes its laws, etc. That's been repeated uh, hundreds of times. But really, uh, controlling the currency of a country and the monetary supply and the monetary system gives you almost uh, complete power. And what we say is let's start by making a strict distinction between public money and private money. Public money is the dollars or the pesos or the yen that we all have in our wallets. And that has a particular particularity that very often people forget. Public money belongs to the people. It's like the national territory. If you are a Japanese or a Canadian citizen, you can say, well, all of Canada belongs to the Canadians, which doesn't mean that all Canadians have the same allotted space. A lot of people have a lot of uh, land in Canada, and maybe others don't even have their own home. But that's not the point. The point is that Canada belongs to the Canadians, irrespective of how you might split up the Canadian territory. The same thing with public money. Public currency, public money, belongs to we the people. It does not belong to the banks. It does not belong to anybody to fiddle around with it. Uh, independent of the fact that a lot of people are millionaires and maybe other people have little money in, the, in their own wallets. But the key point is that public money, since it belongs to the people, it is a public utility, so to speak, and it does not, should not generate interest. If you have a hundred peso bill or a hundred yen bill in your wallet and you leave it there for a year, there's no reason why you should expect it to reproduce itself and in a year's time you should have 110 yen or 120 yen. It will still be the same, the same monetary value. Private money, however, which is the banking money created by the banking system, which as a whole, perhaps not any bank individually, but as a whole, 
through fractional lending, creates money out of nothing, not only do they create private money out of nothing, which are just blips on your computer screen or perhaps a printout on your banking statement or in, in, in other more sophisticated financial uh, instruments of financial media, but on top of it, they create the money out of nothing and they charge you interest for it. So definitely the problem is, and this is the way we see it, and, and I think it helps to explain the global financial collapse of 2008, is that the banking cartel need to take over the public monetary entity and the public monetary system, ensuring that there is never enough public non-interest-bearing money for all the needs of the real economy. And since there is not enough public money, in they come and say, don't worry about it, you need money, I'll loan you the money. And they loan you the money by creating it scripturally out of nothing, and on top of it, they will charge you interest. So they, what they do in the long run is they generate an entire economic system which is based on debt. We're all indebted. The, the nation states are indebted. Look at, look at America, $14 trillion or $14.5 trillion uh, national debt. Corporations are indebted, individuals are indebted, credit cards, mortgages, car loans, etc. And the key question is, the entire planet is indebted, but indebted with whom? Adrian Selbucci of SecondRepublicProject.com I will leave you today with some homework, and that is simply to listen to the rest of the interview or watch the rest of the interview when it becomes available tomorrow on my website, because I think it is, again, a very interesting conversation and begins to flesh out some of these very difficult questions about the best way of constructing a government that would actually work in the interests of the people. This is, as I say, a very, very large question, and it will not be solved overnight. It will not be solved by one or two people engaging in a small conversation. The only possible way that we can truly hope to affect change on a massive scale is to get numerous people in numerous places working on solutions that broadly defined to adhere to the same principles, but which, of course implement different ideas in different ways in different times to take into account different contexts. There will be no one-size-fits-all solution to the idea of how we can be best governed. And in fact, competing ideas are probably the only way to actually win. If we are fighting a centralized system of monopolistic control over everything, i.e. the New World Order, then we cannot fight that by coming up with a monolithic idea and trying to centralize all power into the hands of a few people who are running that. That's why I don't put all of my eggs in any one basket and I don't I'm not a card-carrying member of any political party, and I do not ascribe completely to the, to the uh, ideas and ideals of any movement, let alone the Second Republic Project movement. But I do think that it's important that people do begin engaging and tackling these issues, and beginning to take these issues into account for themselves and seeing how they can be implemented in their own localities. And I think secondrepublicproject.com is a good place to begin that dialogue because that is still a, a movement that is in its very early stages and is still very much amenable to the dialogue process. And I'm sure people can get in there and start making contributions, writing white papers, making videos, and engaging in the dialogue that I hope will eventually allow us to arrive at a spot where we can put forward a viable alternative solution to the globalist, monarchical, oligarchical, corporatist banking interest system which we find ourselves slowly becoming enslaved in. 
I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.